Justice is not a relative term, but for much of our history, we have manipulated it to such an extent that we have created a parallel sort of justice. More often than not, human justice is just a sinister doppelganger of justice in its purest form. This is because human justice depends on laws, and as we all know, laws are biased. The justice of the Inquisition, the Sharia court, or the sham courts of the dictatorial regimes are based on very different laws and therefore profess their own unique brands of justice. The one main thing that they do have in common though is that they are self-serving. From UN Aligned, I am Ayana Yekrangi and in this episode of The Gordian and Audio, we'll talk about the Justice Doppelganger, the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. So Adrian, both the International Court of Justice, uh, ICJ, and the International Criminal Court, ICC, are contingent on what we call international law. Uh, Where do these laws actually originate from? Well, first it must be noted that laws are not the only factor influencing justice, because the mechanisms that are in place to apply these laws play a crucial part in the administration of justice. Adrian Liberta is the author of Unraveling the United Nations. Having said that, according to the statute of the ICJ, the main sources of international law are international treaties and conventions, international customs as derived from general practice of states, and thirdly, general legal principles recognised by civilised nations. These laws are also influenced by political and legal theories, as well as expertise and interpretations offered by international law scholars. Many reflect the 1920 Statutes of the Permanent Court of International Justice, which was part of the Convention of the League of Nations. Obviously, the 1920s was quite a while ago. Do these laws cover the needs of the modern world? Do, do they, for example, uh, address the climate crisis? Are there any international laws that, to prevent ecocide, animal exploitation, or even the discrimination against LGBTQ plus people? Well, these issues do not come under the direct remit of the ICJ or the ICC unless there are aggravating circumstances. For instance, if the government of Chechnya decided to start a pogrom against LGBT plus people, um, Indeed, it would take several experts to evaluate the UN laws effectively. Nevertheless, one does not need to be an authority in this respect to identify some of the glaring weaknesses. Sticking with LGBT+, as an example, the United Nations argues that its Declaration of Human Rights is unequivocal in this respect when it claims that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. But this is nonsense. How else could over a third of its member states get away with criminalizing homosexuality? We equally reject attempts to prescribe new rights that are contrary to our values, norms, traditions and beliefs. We are not gays. 
As for unequivocal laws against ecocide, despite the UN's claim that one of its key mandates is to promote the development and implementation of international environmental law, we are still a long way off. Animal rights, of course, barely get a look in. Before we start talking about the courts, let's get the confusion out of the way. Tell me, what is the difference between the ICC and the ICJ? Indeed, the mandates, mechanisms and functions of the ICJ and the ICC are very different, as are the successes and failures. The International Court of Justice is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. It took over from and is based upon the statutes of the Permanent Court of International Justice that was established by the League of Nations in 1920. The court's role, and I'm quoting here, is to settle in accordance with international law, legal disputes submitted to it by states and to give advisory opinions on legal questions referred to it by authorized United Nations organs and specialized agencies. The court is composed of 15 judges who are elected for terms of office of nine years by the United Nations General Assembly and the Security Council. It is assisted by a registry, its administrative organ. Its official languages are English and French, end of quote. Thus, the ICJ has two main roles, namely settling disputes that are presented to it by the countries that are involved in conflicts, contentious cases, and advising on issues referred to it through UN channels, the advisory proceedings. It is therefore very different from the International Criminal Court, which only deals with individuals. We'll get to the International Criminal Court in a moment, but before that, could you tell me what gives the ICG the right to settle the dispute? Well, um, this is a good question, because in order for the ICJ to settle a dispute, both countries have to agree to allow it to do so. Um, And that could be done through um, the countries actually signing up to the convention or having a treaty that specifies that disputes will be covered through the ICJ or assuming a dispute has already started that both parties appeal to the United Nations ICJ to actually help uh, mediate and, and resolve the issue. So let's say the court issued a ruling to a country that has signed up to the court's jurisdiction. Uh, What happens then? Well, after a case has been submitted to the judgment of the court, the states involved are expected to abide by its decision. Should a party wish to ignore the ruling of the court, the other party may call on the Security Council to intervene. I must admit... I have a little antenna that goes on whenever I hear anything about the Security Council. What if this UN body objects to the ruling of the court? Well, quite right. The Security Council may choose to dismiss the decision of the court through one or more of its permanent members, even if these members had previously submitted to its jurisdiction. 
Okay, so the Security Council can easily veto and turn a blind eye to the court's ruling. Um, are there any precedent for this? Indeed, this happened spectacularly in 1986 with the case of Nicaragua versus the United States. It was a story that became all too familiar in the Third World during the Cold War. Local conflicts becoming proxy wars for the superpowers. Military coups and dictatorships propped up as a means of power projection. Nicaragua had filed against uh, a case against the USA, accusing it of mining its port and of supporting the Contras in their attack on the legitimate government of Nicaragua. Owing to the USA's previous acceptance of the court with regards to the jurisdiction over such disputes, the suit was considered valid, despite the US arguing against this. Mr. Speaker, many of us have known for some time that the Reagan administration's Central America policies couldn't stand the light of day. But now the administration is admitting as much. By refusing to accept the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice over the CIA's mining of Nicaraguan ports, the administration has demonstrated that it knows that its policies can't withstand an inquiry by an impartial, objective international body. The ICJ had the final word because its statute specifies that in case of doubt, it is up to the ICJ to decide whether its jurisdiction was lawful or not. So the US withdrew its previous commitments that were applicable to the case, but the ruling went ahead. The US was ordered to terminate its aggression against Nicaragua and to pay reparations. The US refused to comply and vetoed the ruling on the 28th of October 1986. Two other permanent members of the Security Council, the United Kingdom and France, no surprise there, abstained. <laughs> as did Thailand. A few days later, on the 3rd November, the General Assembly voted by a majority of 94 to 3 on a resolution calling for the USA to respect the ruling. Only El Salvador and Israel joined the US in voting against the resolution. The United Nations list of ICJ rulings does not even include the Nicaragua versus the United States case. This is because in 1978, the ICJ decided that only cases that were accepted um, by responding parties should be included. As such, it only publicizes its successes. But does that apply to all ICJ rulings? No, the same does not apply for advisory proceedings. And I cannot tell you why the ICJ decided to be more transparent in this aspect of its work. In these cases, the court's opinions are listed even when disagreements persist, as in the recent conclusions on the issue concerning the Chagos Islands. The Chagos Islands are a group of islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean. They're close to other beautiful tropical paradises, such as the Seychelles, the Maldives and Mauritius. The Chagos Islands, the largest island of which is Diego Garcia, remained under British control when Mauritius received its independence in 1965. The British proceeded to change its name to the British Indian Ocean Territory, deport all of its residents, about 1,500 people, and set up a US-UK military base. On the 25th of February, however, the ICJ found that the process of decolonization of Mauritius 
was not lawfully completed when the country acceded to independence. It's therefore concluded the United Kingdom was under an obligation to bring an end to administration of the Chagos archipelago as rapidly as possible. The United Kingdom is under an obligation to bring an end to its administration of the Chagos archipelago as rapidly as possible, thereby enabling Mauritius to complete the decolonization of its territory in a manner consistent with the right of peoples to self-determination. The UK government, however, made it immediately clear it would disregard the advisory verdict. Soon after the decision, Karen Pierce, the UK permanent representative to the United Nations, declared, the United, United Kingdom, Kingdom has no doubt about our sovereignty, about our sovereignty over the over British, British Indian, Indian Ocean, Ocean territory. territory. It has been under continuous British sovereignty since 1814. Contrary to what has been said today, it has never been part of the Republic of Mauritius. Wow. The affairs you just described only seem to exemplify how self-interest can take precedence over justice. The court seems to be at the mercy and goodwill of the Security Council. Yes, the UN institutions can indeed be undermined by the very nations that helped create them. Now, let's talk about the International Criminal Court, the court that deals with people rather than nation-states. What does the job description of the court include, Adrian? So, the ICC is very different from the ICJ, although it is very easy to confuse the two courts. The fact that both are headquartered in The Hague in the Netherlands has added to the confusion. The ICC was set up by the Rome Statute in 1998 and only began operations in 2002. I would now want to ask my representative to the conference to place in your hands the Rome Statutes of the International Criminal Court. May it serve mankind well in generations to come. Its purpose is specifically to judge individuals accused of committing serious crimes, namely genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, crimes of aggression and offences against the administration of justice. While all UN member states are ipso facto parties to the statutes of the ICJ, the ICC is not an organ of the United Nations, nor is it universally recognized. Nevertheless, the United Nations Security Council is one of the authorities that can trigger a trial, others being a state party and the actual prosecutor. When it comes to defining specific crimes, the ICC is unambiguous, which is not surprising considering the extent of violence involved. In all, however, the ICC has only managed to indict 45 people, although most are tried in absentia and never brought to justice anyway. Only 45 people? The, the court must be really exclusive if they can only process, like, what, 2.3 people a year? Indeed. Many cases are also dropped due to lack of sufficient evidence. Successful convictions include the first in 2006, that of Thomas Lubunga Dilio. All rights, veuillez vous lever. The International Criminal Court is now in session.
L'audience de la Cour pénale internationale est ouverte. For war crimes committed in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the last, Ahmed Al-Faqi Al-Mahdi in 2016, a Tuareg Islamist responsible for war crimes in Mali. A historic moment in an unprecedented trial. Ahmed Al-Faqi Al-Mahdi says he regrets his role in destroying World Heritage sites in Timbuktu in 2012. One of the main problems is that state cooperation is necessary for ICC to mount successful cases. Without this, the court would face several problems, including reaching the convicts and necessary witnesses. Cases are therefore often cherry-picked, with many centering around Africa. Another problem is that when people in power are convicted in absentia, they then become desperate to cling on to power at all costs in order to avoid being extradited to face justice. This was the case with Omar al-Bashir of Sudan. Most concerning, however, is the fact that investigations can take decades to conclude. This is obscene. No wonder so many of those indicted die before their case is concluded. Okay, Adrian, let me ask you one last question, though I must admit I'm a bit anxious to ask. Considering the exclusiveness of these court trials, how much does each case cost? Right. In 2012, John Silverman, writing for the BBC, highlighted this very issue. And I'm going to quote from his article. The International Criminal Court currently has an annual budget of over $140 million and 766 staff. Since its inception, its estimated expenditure has been around $900 million, with only one completed trial to show for a decade of effort and expenditure. The ICC has faced regular criticism that it sucks in investment with few results to show for it. End of quote. Sadly, the situation is no better today. The ICC's budget for 2021 is €148,259,000. And with about 14 ongoing investigations, that is over €10.5 million per case. Moreover, six of those cases date back to over a decade since the investigation opened. The overall cost per case is therefore a good deal higher. One may argue that the existence of the court itself serves as a deterrent and that its value should therefore not be judged by the number of investigations alone. However, with so few success stories to speak of, it is highly unlikely that the ICC would constitute much of a deterrent. Thank you very much for talking to me, Adrian. You're very welcome. Thank you. So here's the question, are we better off without the ICJ and the ICC? On the one hand, until we have a better system to replace them, the answer is no. But on the other, if they lead us to sit back complacently, thinking that they are the solution to international justice, the answer is yes, something better is clearly needed. A justice system that is founded on clear ethical principles that do not need decades to unravel and effective mechanisms that cannot be undermined by nation states. Before you go, we'd like to introduce you to a new feature in the Gordian magazine titled 
UN in Focus. From next month on, an exclusive piece in the Gordian magazine will highlight the good, bad and the ugly of the events in the UN. If you would like to contribute to this feature, please contact Unaligned at contact at un-aligned.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Gordian in Audio. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it with someone who you love. If you didn't enjoy it, well, share it with someone who you don't like. They're going to hate you for it. This episode was edited by Ayana Ekrangi and Adrian Liberto. Make sure to find Adrian's extraordinary book titled Unraveling the United Nations on Amazon. It's an amazing read on the shortcomings of the United Nations. Take good care of yourselves and see you next month.